warm welcome to you all. Hope you'll thoroughly enjoy our programme. Britannia, a very British podcast about very British movies, with just a hint of professionalism, with Scott and with Stephen. Good morning, Stephen. How are you, sir? Morning, mate. How are you? I'm all right? I'm fine, yes. It's all good. It's way past our 50th episode now. Things are chugging along nicely. Um, bit of news this week. We, as most people know, we record quite well in advance, so by the time this episode goes out, our Facebook group will be sort of well embedded into the internet something you're not involved in you don't like facebook do you if i remember rightly uh yes i've never been on um facebook as far as having an account or or anything um yeah so um sometimes people send me links to things on facebook and i open it up and it's saying about logging into your account i go <laughs> um, I also got emails through telling me um, I've got like six friends waiting to be um, approved um, oh. and and to log into my Facebook account, um, <laughs> which I'm for some reason dubious about. I wonder why. Yeah, yeah but um, no, I I do I do Twitter, but um, no, I've, I've left Facebook alone. Yeah, yeah. I just wanted to open it up. We had the Facebook page, which I found, which Tony which Tony set up. Thank you, Tony, for doing that. And we're still keeping the Facebook page going. But I find it a bit clunky, and it's it's a little bit difficult to interact with the listeners. So the Facebook group is a bit of a forum now for all of you guys out there. If you haven't become a member, just apply. We'll, we'll, we'll authorise your application, no problem whatsoever. Just come in, say hello, and just chip in with... It's, it's not just going to be about the podcast. What I want is, is to get a little bit of chat going about classic British movies. You know, people dropping little video clips and trailers and, and, and certain other bits of memories. You know, that sort of thing. That You know, interaction. That's what it's all about. Mate. Yeah, it's not all about us. Thank God. Yes. Probably for the best, yeah. It's about, Probably it's about, is. It's about the films, not about us. Yeah. So, yeah, the Facebook group has only been going, at the point of recording, it's only been going about three or four days. By so, the time this goes out, it'll have been going about three or four months. It will do, the, the rate we're behind at the moment. But, yeah, just just pop on over to Facebook, find Real Britannia Group, and just apply to be a member, and we'll welcome you on board with open arms. And the Twitter as well. If you're on Twitter, I mean, it's, it's our Britannia pod, I believe, isn't it? Our Britannia. Yeah. I can't remember. Yeah. So, today. Oh God, just what happened to that professionalism? Stumbling away here. Lasted three minutes. Yeah. yeah. Today's movie is my choice. And at the tail end of what's been a particularly hot summer. Yeah. We decided to cool things down a wee bit. 
it's a movie that I've watched many times. It's a movie that I love. It's 1948. It's Scott of the Antarctic. We'll be back after this. The Empire Cinema Leicester Square was the scene of the Royal Command film performance. And Londoners were there in great strength and the fog to see the arrival of the Duke of Edinburgh, Her Majesty the Queen and Princess Margaret. It was indeed a glittering occasion, and a number of leading personalities of the film trade had the honour of presentation before the show. Bouquets were presented, and to the Queen a bouquet of orchids by Bobby Henry, the child film star, and to Princess Margaret by Phyllis Calvert's little daughter Oriole, who was quite rightly in a very gay mood. The film was Scott of the Antarctic, and afterwards many British and American film stars were presented. First, Jack Halbert, who then attended the royal party as they talked with other stars. Sid Field. Valerie Hobson. Glynis John. Alan Ladd, Vivian Lee, and Sir Lawrence. Margaret Lockwood, Myrna Loy, Michael O'Shea and his wife, Virginia Mayo. And then John Mills, star of the command film. The Duke chatting with John Mills and Michael O'Shea. And with Gene Simmons. Certainly it was a thrilling experience for all the stars. And in the world of the cinema, a memorable event though the absence of the king owing to his serious illness was deeply felt. Scott of the Antarctic, released in the UK on the 7th of December 1948, directed by Charles Friend, starring another great cast list here, John Mills, Harold Warrender, Derek Bond, Reginald Beckwith, James Robertson Justice, Kenneth Moore, John Gregson... Barry Letts. Synopsis. I'm nearly losing it again here at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> it's stumbling like a buffoon. <laughs> right. Stiff of a lip. Sorry. Synopsis, and I think it's unfair that we can do a spoiler-filled synopsis because I think most people are aware of what this story is, Stephen. Yes. Scott of the Antarctic, a British adventure film released in '48 that chronicles the legendary ill-fated South Pole expedition of British explorer Robert Falcon Scott between 1910 and 1912. Scott, played by John Mills, organises an expedition to Antarctica for the purpose of being the first to reach the South Pole. 
After enduring a series of setbacks from the harsh elements, he and his team of five finally reached their destination, only to find the Norwegian flag. Explorer Roald Amundsen beat them to their goal. Dejected, Scott and his team begin the long return journey to their camp. Battling treacherous weather and exhaustion, Scott and his men perish on the ice, the last of them dying just 11 miles from a supply depot. Famous, famous story. I think it's something that we were all taught in school and we were all aware of. Uh, certainly pre-war he was taught in schools as this figure of heroism. He was, he was you know, a British hero. Died battling to do something for the good of the country. Probably not mentioned so much nowadays, I'd have thought. I'm wondering if the kids of today are fully aware of the story of Scott and the expedition and the polar explorers. Something you're fully aware of, mate, and what were aware of as a kid. Absolutely, yeah. And I do yeah. think you're right that um, a lot of the, the daring do and the, um, the sort of notoriety of people like this and even slightly post-war with people like Edmund Hillary, um, yeah, they, they, they've they've been um, been lost a bit to the consciousness of of kids of today, as it were. Um, you know, there's museums still out there for um, the the people who went on this expedition, and mm. um, the actual uptake of of that. I imagine you know, just because of the modern world moving more online anyway, but still, I don't think that the consciousness of um, these people and what they tried to do is is out there to the same level as it was with us. It was just synonymous um, with adventuring and, and um, sort of expedition was out there with Scott when we were kids. Now you'd have to be explaining who they were, I think. That's a sad, yeah. sad thing in a way. When we were kids, our equivalent were the Apollo crew you know there were still people being landing on the moon when we were young children you know for a very very short time and prior to this you know it was the it wasn't the golden age of the victorian explorer you know the guys that were trying to find the source of the nile yeah or the northwest passage you know finding trade routes wasn't it that was the whole point of the explorers wasn't it they were trying to find the trade routes to the spice countries weren't they of asia china india and just trying to cut off having to travel around, you know, Africa and, and back up through. And by 1910, by the Edwardian age, the Northwest Passage had been found, I believe. I'm sure it had. Obviously, the Suez Canal wasn't built, you know, cutting, you know, days off of the journey that way. But the focus sort of drifted north and south to the polar region. Um, but even then, that was nothing new. Cook, when he was in Australia, I'm sure it was Captain Cook, ventured certain degree south, you know. Um, and it wasn't until this point in time that we weren't we weren't even sure if it was a continent. You know, was this just a, a huge floating lump of ice, or what? Was there land underneath it? Nobody actually knew. It, yeah, it was just only a short time before this, a few decades before this, that it had actually been established. You know, on the map, as it were, and and mm. they, you know, they, he had maps of it, of the outline of it. It had been mapped all around the outside, but the centre really hadn't um, been 
done. And yeah. although they although they had an idea of, of with the plateaus and where it rose and then plateaued out again as far as the geography, um, nobody had actually been to the centre. And as you say, it was past the point where people were trying to discover what was there. It was more to the point of trying to get there. Um, and that that these that's why the North and South Pole were like the last big expeditions of of reaching um, anywhere as far as um, this human endeavour to be the first. Yeah, as you say, the the next one after that would have been Everest. And and Hillary said, you know, famously said, you know, why he did it? It was because it was there. Um, With the South Pole, and with Scott in particular, it was a scientific expedition. And I quite wrongly said in the last episode when I introduced that we were going to do this movie, I said, oh, typical British trait, it's it's a movie that celebrates failure. Uh, something quite good at as Brits, you know. We we <laughs> we were quite pessimistic. We we settle for second best, you know. Captain Scott was not a failure when you look at this movie. He never set out to race to the pole. That was going to be the goal. The goal was ultimately to reach the South Pole. But he wasn't expecting Amundsen to be there at the same time. Amundsen had declared that he was going to go to the North Pole. And when you look into the history of this, and I do find this whole subject fascinating, as I mentioned briefly to you before, mate. Um, Amundsen comes from a country that is covered in snow and mountains. And when he took his expedition, and we're going to go into this as well as we do our review of the film, he predominantly took sled dogs rather than horses and motorised equipment, which is what Scott took. But also, he took skiers, all the guys they took could ski. Yes. <laughs> With Scott, he took not he took quite a fair bit of military personnel, but he also took a lot of non-military scientists who weren't geared up for harsh conditions that the South Pole was going to throw at them. So when suddenly this race develops, mistakes are made, and obviously it led to the outcome that we're quite famous that that, that we're quite aware of now. So, with regard to the story of it being a failure, I, I think that's a total misconception. It wasn't a failure. He he achieved what he wanted to do. He got to the South Pole. Well, I mean, I think, I think, yeah, he he, he didn't set out with the intention of of winning a race yeah. because, like they mentioned in the film, you know, the the sort of um, the unexpected news. That it had become a race, and that um, you know that there'd been a gentleman's agreement almost broken. Mm. That you know you get a pop at it before you, somebody else has a go at it. Um, that that comes into. It. I mean, yes, you, you know he, he failed to take the the skiers. You know he, he was advised to take people who could ski or have people who were trained in skiing. And he took somebody along to train um, his men in skiing, and then didn't let them actually do the training, um, which you know. Um, <laughs> Which which seemed like you know that's a, a just one example of a number of aspects in in the expedition where um, choices that were made were contributing to the, the the fact that the result ended up being that yes it wasn't a failure as far as them getting to the the South Pole it was a failure that they didn't manage to survive and get back exactly yeah <laughs> <laughs> I mean that was that was where the failure is um, and yeah it was it was doomed from the beginning unfortunately I mean. Um, you know that a lot of the choices that were made as far as planning it 
weren't the correct choices and um, Scott's own um, self-belief um, and the way he actually projected that onto other people and they believed in him um, I think you know that lack of of criticism perhaps was you know contributed as well that there wasn't more challenge um, the fact that they you know the the, the military and the royal societies and, and such like weren't willing to back the idea because it it was flawed um, as, pl- as a plan um, in the first place I think um, was referenced in the film but not really explored and th- this isn't a film setting out to actually um, give any cr- critical analysis of, of Scott and his, his planning really in that sense yeah. it's telling the story um, and you know I I tried to watch the film um, critically and uncritically because um, critically in the sense of, of appraising it as value as a film and the acting and the, the um, cinematography and the plot and you know and put uncritically because putting aside the factual inaccuracies and, and you know the less favorable opinion of, of, of Scott as a, a hero in some senses um, but this this film, does exactly what it sets out to do. It it portrays the the human endeavour that that was done and the struggle that these men went through, um, and that in that it, you know it achieves exactly its objective. It's a very very faithful representation as well, because luckily, at the time this film was made, you know there was still access. Still is today, obviously, but there was access to the cine recordings that were made moving pictures and still photo- photographs at the time. And if you look at some of the photos historically that were taken at the time and compare them to some of the shots, they are exactly the same. You know, the clothing, the equipment. Um, there's one particular scene where they build the first hut, the base camp, after they land. And in Scott's quarters, where it's all made of wood, obviously, but he's got packing crates as shelves and this little desk that he works at. Seek out that photo on the internet and then look at the look at the scene. It's exactly the same. He's even wearing the same clothes. So it was based on diary entries of guys that were there at the time. And it is just a faithful recreation of a tragic event. But also at the same time, and I can't stress this enough, it is achingly British, this movie. Oh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, the... the the lips in this are, are so stiff, not just because of the, the freezing conditions. You stole my line. Um, I was going to use that. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> no. um, but it, it, it is, you know, it's, it's it's the fact that people would, would rather, you know, walk into their death than actually challenge what, you know, would be in a way a superior officer that, you know, particularly with their military background, a number of them, yes. um, that there were, you know, Rather than actually contest a, a, an instruction coming from the the leader of the group, that you know, end up losing limbs and ultimately their lives. And this is and you know all, all of the men, on the expedition wanting to be in the final five, um, despite the fact that it was going into an uncertain future and potentially death. Yeah. Um. And but that was what people had, had set out to do. I mean it. It is based upon diaries, and I know that the the um, 
the diaries at the time that they're based for for Scott were the um, heavily edited ones um, from his 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 wife had heavily edited yes. them, and the ones that came out since then that were more revealing. Yeah. Um, and I know they've taken poetic license in the film with a number of aspects, like the way that um, Oates pops up in in the rain outside. Um, <laughs> that's a, that's a, a real Britannia bingo thing, I think. Is the uh, a man stood under a lamppost in the rain? Um, <laughs> yeah, that's true. Actually, normally it would the, um, normally it would be in London, but this was up north somewhere, it, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah, but... and. Um, you know, he'd already written in truth. He'd already written to him from from India, and they'd had co- you know correspondence rather than him just turning up out the blue like that. Yeah. And there's, there's other bits that are poetic license, but they make the story better in that sense. But otherwise, it's it is um, incredibly um, accurate. I mean, it's, it is almost documentary in many of the aspects. I mean, you know, the the um, the use of of some footage that is like natural history footage of, of penguins and <laughs> frolicking and all this kind of stuff and then mixing that in to the footage of studio footage which was done um incredibly seamlessly but um for the time as a technical feat that is you know to be praised there was um mm, there was some real difficulty with that if truth be told the um director of photography is the famous jack cardiff who who worked on dozens yes. and dozens of major major movies and this being a Technicolor movie, there's a specific process with Technicolor. It's a three-strip process. I don't know the exact technical details, but you know it's a little bit more difficult to work with than a standard camera. And what they did was to try and get some of that footage. Some of it was filmed in Norway itself, I believe. Some was in Switzerland, and some was in the Antarctic. And because of the different lighting conditions and the time of the year that they went, some of the footage came out bright blue. Some came out very dark because of the reflection from the snow and up against the blueness of the sky. And it was the guys at Technicolor that adjusted all of that footage to make it look as crystal crystal clear as what we get here. Um, and as you say, it's incredible footage. It does look like something from... Do you remember those old Walt Disney true life adventure things that we used yes. to get? It's yeah, that, absolutely, It's yeah. that sort of thing, isn't it? And, you know, we've got films of dolphins and whales and penguins, as you say. And it is just a beautiful cinematic example of, of early Technicolor movies. Um, absolutely, yeah. And I think the... The, the bleakness of the scenery just to you know that was shot um the way that it it was done um it, it it's almost a mirror of the um the the, the actual performances mm. in a way because there's there's because obviously they're quite wrapped up in a lot of clothing as well and and you know frostbitten faces covered in in ice and stuff like this they there's there's not great um, sort of um, expressions of um, feeling and um, acting done on there. It's all very subtle, yeah. And it's the starkness and and the lack of of it a lot of the time. With you know that then when there is any the small subtle 
reactions to things they stand out more mm. and it's the same with the scenery in, in a way because you know a, a speck of geographical feature within that bleakness um has a lot more resonance because of what it's surrounded by yeah and it's the same with with the acting in in a way but yeah yeah the technical um aspect of the the photography on this and getting it all to work including the studio parts to to fit with it um you know it, it's all been done um as a with absolute mastery, really. Yeah, there's a, there's an interview with Jack Cardiff where he says, you know, Technicolor had been about for a little while, but we're all fairly new to it as, you know, working at Elstree with it. And there are a few scenes that are obviously studio-bound. They can't film everything on location. So what they did, they set up a tent at the studios in Elstree and lit it, lit the studio, you know, and for when they're filming the scenes inside the tent because the lighting's on the outside it created a green glow inside the tent so all the faces were lit green right and they thought that's fine that's realism you know it's exactly how it would have looked in 1912 you know you've got the bright light from the outside coming through green canvas there's going to be a green interior to the film so they filmed it as naturally and realistically as possible, sent it off to the Technicolor Lab. The Technicolor Lab guys went, bit of a problem with that one. Give us a couple of days, we'll tweak it and send it back to you. They sent back the footage. All the faces were white, all back to normal. And Jack Cardiff and Charles Friend, the director, went, no, that's not what we wanted. And the Technicolor guys were saying, well, you can't have green faces on the screen. And they went, yes, we can. And they do. and if you look, there is a slight green tinge to the interior scenes inside the tents. And technically, as you, as you say, it's a marvellous movie. And not only visually, we've got to mention this. When I said this film is achingly British, how much more British can you get than having a score composed by Ray Fawn Williams? Absolutely, yeah. So much so. I mean, it's a majestic piece of music and it ties in surprisingly well with the footage because he, he composed it without seeing a shot of, shot of the film so much so that he pieced it all together and it became a symphony it was his seventh symphony or something like that um, I thought that was the I thought he'd, he'd turned it into either a, a separate album or a, mm. or a concert performance or something like yeah because I seem to remember that it was one of the early examples of because you know you'll get now um, there'll be a, a, some stately home there'll be a, a an orchestra performing, you know, the, the theme songs from films yeah, and stuff yeah. like this. But this was, I think, one of the first times that um, a, a score for a film had been turned into an actual performance by in, in itself. It's the first um, time in that sense. Mm, yeah, I think so. I think it's the only time that something similar to this has actually been made into a symphony. I mean, critics will argue that it's just four or five separate pieces of music stitched together. But it's not, you know, when you listen to that whole symphony, and it is symphony number no. seven, it's it's a piece of work that stands on its own, on its own merits, um, because it has a beginning, a middle, and an end. Because the story has a beginning, a middle, and an end. If you, you know, you listen to the music, it, it ties in perfectly with what we're seeing on the screen, as I say. And as I say, you can't get anything more British than, than a Ray Fawn Williams score. No, it, it, you're absolutely right. Um, it's achingly British in that sense, and it's achingly British in the cast, as you mentioned mm. before as well. I think there's so many elements about this that 
do actually um, just evoke um, the sort of um, almost propaganda of patriotism. I mean, we know of it, you know, that when it was actually done was um, just after the war and there was a certain element of wanting to um, make people feel feel better and um, in that way. Yeah. So there's, a, there's a, a reason probably why this was done at the time it was done, um, at least as far as it getting more support. Um, but it was it 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 was a film that you know there's, there should have been a, a a version of sooner or later to actually tell the story like you say because um, it is iconic really in British history of the last sort of hundred and fifty years. Yeah. It's also I think it's probably one of the more lavish, the more extravagant of the Ealing productions. We know that you know. Mm. We know that Ealing did dramas. We, we've we've come across a couple on our journey through, but but obviously Ealing is best remembered for the comedies. But this is, you know, something to rival anything that Hollywood was throwing out at the time easily. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, you know, obviously that the cast has a lot to do with that. I mean, the the quality that there was in there. Should we talk about the uh, cast a wee bit? It's as as custodian of the Village Hall of Fame. Yes. Um, um, we, we, I think I, I can think of one, possibly two, inductees today. Um, we've got two, by my reckoning. Right. Let's, let's um, have a look. I think this is a fourth appearance for Kenneth Moore. So Kenneth Moore's already in, isn't he? Night to Remember, Admiral Crichton, Doctor in the House. That's correct. Yeah. How do we stand on John um, Mills? We try not to, because he's a terrible hey. nice chap. Um, well, um, he's only on a, on a second appearance. So there's, there's about there's about seven or eight people who have their second appearance. Wow. Um, John Mills, Derek Bond, James Robertson, Justice, um, Christopher Lee. Yes. Um, who had a minor minor very, part. Very very minor part. Yeah. Um, Clive Martin. Um, there's David Linney, who was who was the young lad, telegram lad, who actually was in. Um, it always rains on a Sunday. Wow. Okay. Um, so there's a there's a few like that in there, um, but there's um, a fourth appearance as well for um, Bruce Setton, who's previously been in um, Seven Days Till Noon, uh, Doctor in the House, Legal Gentleman, and this is his, his fourth. He was one. also in the Blue Lamp. He was in the Blue Lamp. I didn't mention that one because there's Clive, Clive Morton was also in the Blue Lamp, and then this, so that's his second appearance. But um, so there's a few that you know that come across in that sense. Um, Sam Kidd. Oh, the, the, um, go on. He's yep. he's got his his um, fourth appearance if you include the Blue Lamp, but third so appearance in in actual officially goes um, in. Excellent. So he finally Excellent. officially goes in for um, Passport to Pimlico, Seven Days to Noon. And um, Ten Willington Place. Of course, yeah. So he's he's the new inductee, along with a woman yep. named Dandy Nichols. <laughs> yes, that's the one I recognised. Um, a very young Dandy Nichols. Most people will know her as the silly old moo. She's Alf Garnet's wife. And what are the two other movies we saw her in, mate? Uh, Yield to the Night yep. and um, Georgia Girl. There we go. So... Dandy Nichols gets inducted into the Hall of Fame. Um, And Sam Kidd, who we will see dozens and dozens of times in the future, finally makes it in officially, which is very good news. Yeah, and considering how many films he was in and how many other things he was in, he was was just 
another one of these that was just in virtually everything. Yeah. So to finally manage to get him into the Hall of Fame is is it's belated but well deserved. It, it, again, got in yeah. before John Mills, who I thought was going to be one of the very very first people to go in there. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah surprisingly, as well, the first appearance on Real Britannia for a chap called John Gregson, who played yes. uh, Crean, the Irish um, officer. He will crop up over the next few months in a lot of the kitchen sink and the British realism stuff that we're going to be covering. And probably best known for Genevieve, I think. And, you know, a couple of sort of Ealing comedies. Very, very famous face of the 50s and TV series from the 60s. So at last, John Gregson has got his toe in the door of the Village Hall of Fame, so he will be cropping up a lot more in the future. Second appearance, you say, for James Robertson Justice. Again, surprisingly, only the second one. Surprisingly, but he'll he'll be um, ramping those up once oh, you get further into the Doctor's series and, and stuff. But um, based upon what you previously were saying about about, him, <laughs> yeah, about the the, the um, sort of the myth mm. and legend he sort of created around himself that wasn't maybe as true as as he purported it to yeah. be um, for a lot of his his background um, and his exploits that he you know maybe purported to do that didn't actually do and stuff mm. um strange for him to be you know partially alongside christopher lee who um actually did all these th- i mean you know he, he his his um previous history before oh, been god in in films i mean what he did during the war and all sorts yeah. of things i mean he was he was an absolute you know legend and but then didn't talk about it sort of thing, what he, he did. So it's a bit of a contrast there, you know, really. There's a slight link between the two of them. If the story is true, which I think this part of the, the James Robertson Justice legend is true, he worked for Reuters uh, before the war, and he was in the same department or the same office as Ian Fleming when he was working for Reuters. Ian Fleming was Christopher Lee's cousin. Yes, so it, is it, and he, that's why he wanted him as to be Bond, exactly. didn't he? Exactly, it's all linked somewhere along the line. Um, I can't fault any of these performances, whatever. I mean, standout performances for me. James Robertson Justice, I think, let's just talk about him while we're, while we're on the subject. Yes. Hasn't got the booming Scottish accent that we know and love. It's more this sort of almost cockney, down-to-earth, you know, petty office. Well, it was... It was Meant to be a Welshman. It's a wasn't Welshman, it? but it didn't sound Welsh, did it? It, it almost sounded yeah. like Cockney, Cockney yeah. South of England. But it, it's just this hulking character that you can see why, you know, if, if this is true to the real life Evans, it, you can see why Scott picked him to be part of the five. You know, he was just this hulking person that was going to sort of keep them all. T- he, he was, he was the. The, the strongest of all of them, wasn't he? That's the thing. He was. He was the Shire horse. That's the, the word I'm looking the, for. Yeah. Yes, thank you. And um, you know, the ironically, it's um, in these kind of expeditions and such like when your your body's being taken to the hill, mm. um, it's it's the case that those that have that kind of immense size are usually the ones that come the cropper first, yeah. because their body is is needing to use much more. In order to keep going, just in a general purpose, whereas those that are sort of lighter built and in a way and are smaller, 
um, they need less fuel and, and stuff, so they tend to survive better. Yeah, particularly. I suppose it's yeah. like the the idea of you know a, a mongrel dog surviving better in in a you know an abandoned situation than a, a pedigree. But mm. um, so yes, he was taken along for that that very role as a in reality as well as um, James Robinson Justice being picked for it. Um, and I believe he, I, I think I remember hearing something before about him. He so wanted the role, that's why he he was willing to shear off his he beard. He did, yeah. Um, yeah. To to do it, to be out, of, you know, <laughs> that there's unusualness in that sense. But absolutely, all the performances are great. And James Robertson Justice is one of the outstanding ones. Um, you know, Kenneth Moore, I think, just to stand out. Maybe it's just because we're more aware of him as, oh, a, as an actor in a way, so we concentrate him a bit more. Yeah. But um, all the performances were, were great, and they weren't. They were they weren't extravagant, dramatic, in in that sense. They were very subdued. Yes. And that was what that was where the the real talent is is shown about getting you know just when they see the Norwegian flag. Yeah. And the the looks on their faces, um, and just slight utterances, it's it is in. Incredibly subtle, but um, but incredibly emotive in the in the same time. Even the body language, like you say, they're all covered in layers, layer upon layer of clothing. But you just get this whole feeling of dejectedness. You know, it's all been positive and optimistic on the way. You know, we're going to do this, lads. And then they see that flag, and the shoulders slump. Pretty much, you can see it visibly. And there's a, and there's a turning point. It's just it's an uttering. It's just a a simple uttered line. Mm-hmm. Um, by um, Scott John Mills, mm. um, just to say, um, you know, what a god awful place. Yes. Um, I think it's the line. The line is he's got a god awful place or something to that yeah. effect. Um, she's just a simple sentence, and that's the the turning point of suddenly that um, that optimism, that stiff upper lip, um, joyful exuberance in a way of of you know this being heroic turns into right now it's just a matter of of survival rather than yeah um there being there being something as an objective um that's bigger than themselves to achieve um because that's gone and that that deflates them um and that's why the journey back is a completely different story to the journey there as you say it becomes a journey of survival it's that that's that last third the journey home this is the the turning point as you say and it just becomes this this nightmare and this catalogue of of errors or this catalogue of disasters that just happen and they're, and they're not major to a, to a certain degree it's it's things like the frostbite that starts to affect them the the fuel even when they manage to get to the fuel dump there's not as much fuel as they was expecting there to be that was a bit strange as well because they shake the can of fuel at that point and it's oh it's, it's not quite full and I think it's um, Wilson. Is it Wilson? Yeah, yeah, Wilson says, must be evaporation. Strange things happen out here. But then he gets this quizzical look from Captain Scott. So what happened? Do you think that that fuel might have been used by the the team that planted it there? You know, it's it's just this whole... It, it, it's, it, it will have been... Um... Will have been evaporation yeah. probably, but they, but like he says, you know, they don't want to go over the. Um, 
the whys and wherefores of because it's just you know there's no point in speculating just accept that it happened yeah. and that's what you're talking about there of them trying to not then start trying to blame and people for what what could have well been a, a just a natural occurrence yeah. and it it was most likely evaporation because they won't have had the uh, as a technical point they won't have have had the the correct um closure on the top of the, on the seal of the actual canister True. to mm. stop stop evaporation you know even, you know and that um i know that from the inverse from my old old car my, my mini where i had to you had to have the the valve that did allow for um for it to come out ah, right, so right. they so so it's you know it's so rather than it being completely sealed in in the same way you had to allow for that that kind of but um so this would have been a would have been evaporation but it's it shows that there's the the modern understanding um even maybe at the time of the film mm -hmm. as opposed to when the expedition went on the understanding of of those kind of things of the evaporation um calorie content of what you needed in food um all these kind of things were you know were, were not understood at the time which is you know why the the ultimately they they passed on because of the a, a combination of um the planning errors and the lack of understanding about the extremes and also the 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 it seems to be from what i've heard the 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 weather was sort of the worst that that year that it had been in, in decades yes. so that was that was another thing that hadn't been you know planned for sheer bad luck um, yeah yeah in in that sense mm. yeah so although there was definitely um planning and um errors on the part of, of of Scott there was a lot of things in there that also contributed that weren't anything down to him but yes the 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 the, the strive at the end you know for, as you say in the last part of the film for survival and the change in tone as far as the behaviour of the men which is in as I say incredibly subtle you'd think people trudging through snow in one direction is is the same as people trudging <laughs> through snow in the opposite direction but it's 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 demonstrably not I mean it's you know the completely different tone mm. to to what was um, a, a, a powerful um, uplifting surge forward to a, a, a decline backwards yeah um, is is dramatically different. It highlights that whole sense of isolation as well because the the journey out is is a group of 12, 15 men, isn't it? Dumping off different things at depots and, and making their way back and before it becomes the final, was supposed to be four, but he takes five again, which is another... That, that's another accusation that was thrown at him because he took the extra man. But that was a correct judgment at the end of the day that he needed that fifth man to help. Um, but you get this whole sense of, as I say, isolation. That we're down to five men now, struggling against the elements, against anything that's being thrown at them. And also, that for, for for a continent that is so huge and so expansive. There's also this sense of claustrophobia in, in the tents as well. You've got five men in close proximity to one another, just desperately trying to survive. Um, and the bond that is there between them. There's, no, there's never an argument. We don't witness any bad blood, do we, throughout the film, from what I can make out? 
No, that that was something that um, that in reality the the through the diaries and and other things there was more contention there, but it was it was it was put it was they managed to get that out of their system by writing it down in a diary <laughs> yeah. rather than expressing it to each other. Um, and you know it's documented that there was um, you know pretty much a, a major falling out between Oates and and Scott over the quality of the ponies and the choice of, of taking them and such yeah. like but um, then they and, and the, the refusal to to kill them at the appropriate point mm. um, again which was you know a, a, something that was decided by Scott against the, the better judgment of other people but there was then the when they were in that close situation relying upon each other that 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 comradeship um overcame all of those previous misgivings and it was all about them um them pulling together and and them seeing the better values in each other and and feeling strong you know stronger towards each other yeah there's a magical moment towards the end they're all dying and they're all writing their last entries in their respective diaries or or journals and and it goes from each person, you know, I think Wilson's writing, you know, um, Captain Scott has now got a frozen foot, I don't think he'll ever walk again. Scott writes his final diary entry, Reginald Beckwith writes his. But this one of the guys is actually laying down underneath the fur, and, and Scott just reaches out, just as he's writing his diary entry, just reaches out and touches him. This, this quiet, unspoken moment, and it's just like this bond between them, that they've been through hell. And they're not going to get out of it. And and I'll tell you what it reminded me of. That that scene in Brief Encounter where Trevor Howard just grabs Celia Johnson's shoulder instead of saying goodbye. Yes. Just that, the, yeah. you know, the emotion and the power in just one gesture, I think, is replicated here. And it's very subtle, as you say. It doesn't take a lot of words. And, and there are no words at that particular point. It just reaches out. There's a guy, one of his companions, one of his one of his friends, one of the people he's going to die with, is there lying down next to him. He just reaches out and just puts his hand on him, and I, I just wow, I'd never noticed that before. Fantastic piece. No, and it's you know when when Oates is just laying there, you can just see over his over the top of him. You can see the others in the background, and there's just him close to the camera, his face, mm. and and just saying that he hopes he doesn't wake up. Yes, in the morning. yeah, and that that um that kind of um dramatic and, and emotiveness from just a simple line and very little facial expression almost almost it's the the lack of facial expression that's the what carries that um and you feel that the as you say in that tent in the claustrophobia of the tent the strength of of feeling between them but the what's also been contained is is immense yeah i've seen this film oh blimey i first saw it i'll tell you how old i was i was about seven or eight and here we go again it was a sunday matinee on the bbc you know and it was it was probably about 30 years old then you know back in the late 70s but I just remember, I think my parents saying to me, oh, it's got the Antarctic's on, you want to watch that? And we all, as a family, were sort of sitting watching it. And and even then, as a child, as a seven or eight-year-old, I knew the story about Captain Oates. You know, that's that's the famous, famous story of the Scott expedition. I'm just going out for some time. Um, 
and there were two scenes that I was waiting for. It was the it was the oats leaving the tent scene, and for some reason I was aware of the frostbite scene when the glove came off. Um, and as a seven year old, I'm watching the scissors cutting James Robertson's Justice's glove, and I'm thinking, oh God, what's it going to look like? I hope it's not too gruesome, you know. <laughs> and even last night watching it, and I must say, vintage classics have brought out the new transfer, the new Blu-ray of the remastered edition and it is the best I've ever seen this film, for, for a film that I've seen a dozen times it was amazing, it was crystal clear the, the copy I got you, I think it may have been DVD rather than Blu-ray but even um, no, it, it was BBC Two. Oh, was it, it was an off-air recording was it <laughs> it's, it's, it, yes, yeah, so at the very end of the credits, yeah. it, it mentions about um, next on BBC Two. Um, oh, yeah. so, yes, so you wouldn't have had the remastered, remastered version. But honestly, the the colours, the clarity of it, it made it a completely different movie to watch for me. A movie that I'm very familiar with. Even you know, like I say, the the frostbite scene and the fingers and the makeup, the makeup. When you get a close up of, say, John Mills's face in the tent, and I'm mentioning this green hue, you can see it, but also you can see the extent to which they've recreated, like the the sunburn, and you know the chat. There's even sort of like the, the cracking of the yeah, lips and, and exactly. stuff. Exactly, just not cracking but splitting. Yeah. Lips, never noticed it before and it is just crystal clear in this new remastered version always been one of my favourite films it's one I turn to quite regularly I think I probably only watched this about 18 months ago and as I say it gave me an excuse to buy this new version and I just sat there thoroughly thoroughly enjoying it again last night as if he was watching it for the first time how many times have you seen it mate is it quite familiar to you Um. This is probably about the third or fourth. Yeah. So not as many as you, but obviously, like you say, I watched it when younger, um, and I think I watched it again. I think I, I, I watched it again probably in my late teens, early twenties. I watched it again yeah. to try and and you know revisit something that I'd watched previously and not really, um, sort of understood all the nuances. Of course, of, yeah. Um, and then it was. It was one of those sort of Sunday afternoon or, or bank holiday watches. Since then, it's been at some point I've I've happened upon it and gone, oh, yeah, all right, I'll watch that. <laughs> um, so the, there's there's those elements. I mean, I couldn't stand for you as extra resonance um, because um, you know what with you sharing a, a you know a name. Uh, there are um, two. There are two constants in life to anybody that is born with the name Scott especially if you were born about the same era as I was. One, you would get called Scott of the Antarctic as a small child. And the other one is people shouting out, beam me up, Scotty. Yeah. Guarantee that. Anybody that was that's, <laughs> called yeah, Scott would, can, have, would have lived I can through understand. That. Yeah, I can understand them. Um, and, and this, uh, I suppose, you know, the Scott of the Antarctic, this great um, expedition as, as far as a, a great human endeavour... Mm. Um, against the odds um, to to achieve um, what is perhaps an, an unenviable um, task, um, you know, does actually reflect your podcasting career, I suppose. Oh, thank but, you very much. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I 
I wonder where um, that was leading to. <laughs> so, um, so yes, I just I just realised the parallel then. Oh, um, but um, you know, sort of thing that you know you're you realise the the value of of this um, this endeavour, even if not not everybody else does. And um, but of course, you'll still be be remembered in one hundred and fifty years as well. So. Um, <laughs> But uh, no, this you know it's a story that is rightly to be told. Yes. Um, because, I mean, it, it was a, it was a, a you know a massive um, story at the time of it happening mm. and and etc. It was it was iconic then. It was obviously still remained iconic through to the the time at which this was filmed, and you know through to our ta- childhood. And I think the film, despite its historical inaccuracies and it's it's um you know for want of a better phrase whitewashing of some elements yeah it it, it captures correctly the um the momentum momentousness of the um the human endeavor that which was attempted to be achieved and that that heroism in that sense that of the um the attempt that um i think Put it on film at this point and making it a classic film in that sense has kept it better in the in the public consciousness than if it hadn't actually been been done yeah. so i think it was right that it was filmed and i think it's right that they took the approach they did in order to to push that out there as, as being um the heroic nature of this rather than rather than you know doing a film that was maybe a bit more um in-depth into the the failings of of choices and such like i don't think there would it's it's necessary for this kind of film to to go into that um you know if it was a if it was a documentary on on television or if it was a a, a two part bbc drama or something over you could get into that kind of human interaction in that sense and and examining things a bit more but i think for this it needs to be more of a of an uplifting story in the sense of of the um the heroism yeah that is attributed to um to to scott and the rest of the um what, what was it called the expedition terra terra nova was the name of the terra, ship terra yeah it was yeah. the name of the ship it's it's, yeah. it's as you said earlier bearing in mind at the time of release it was designed to bring the british public the story of a national hero post-war and yeah. it certainly does that job and as I say, achingly British, superbly shot, visually stunning, even more so now when you see the new version. And I just love the film, as I say. For me, on Letterboxd, I've I've given it five stars without question. It's always been a five-star movie for me. John Mills has always been one of my favourite actors. James Robertson, Justice, John Gregson, they're all in there. All these little faces that we've grown up with watching on the big screen and the small screen as kids. And now we're going back and just appreciating them for other reasons as well. You know, they're just not just those familiar faces. They're now becoming people that we're sort of critically analysing a wee bit and saying, well, yeah, this is because he appeared in this movie and he's going to go on to that movie. And I just absolutely adore the film. In your rating system, how are we going with this? Well, I imagine that there's a, a an element... Of worth to actually seeing it on the big screen because mm. of the the epicness of the the scenery and and such like, but um, I wouldn't necessarily necessarily say it's one that p- 
people should um, seek out in in that way. But I would definitely think that it's, it's a film that everybody um, should really see. Yeah. Um, you know, watching it on a, a normal television screen is is fine. I think for capturing um, what needs to be. Um, got from this film so I think people should go out their way to make sure that they've seen it at least once to to understand to some extent about um, the nature of of this human drive to achieve such things like this Mm. one thing the film doesn't capture is for that that brief period in time that decade at the turn of the 20th century this was enormous news this was you know captured the imagination of not only the british but worldwide you know it was it was incredible this this race to the pole both poles you know um and it doesn't really sort of give that sort of worldwide impact that it had it's more certainly a very personal story we can certainly say that um but yeah this it was enormous an enormous story it it is it's it's um, epic in in many ways, and it's strange how for something that's quite intimate in some senses, like you say, mm. it's also in the wide open space. Um, but the, yes, the story itself is is one that is a big story um, on a small canvas in a way. Yeah. Um, and that that sort of does deserve the attention, and people should actually make sure that they they're aware of it. Um, and I mean, like you said, the, the the parallels with what it took to send people to the moon in in our um, era, as opposed to this, this was this was on the same scale. Of course, it was easily, easily, um, yeah. You know, although that wasn't that wasn't funded in the same way. <laughs> no, um, no, definitely. <laughs> Schoolgirls and and such like. That's but, right. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, this was it. It was it was capturing the imagination enough to be able to of the public at the time enough to fund it. Um, was you know just shows that the the way that people um, were behind were viewing, the whole thing were viewing yeah. this as mm-hmm. as a, a patriotic endeavour. Yeah. Um, is is essential to understanding the background behind the the, the story. Yeah. Fantastic movie. Um, had great fun watching it this time around. Shall we take a short break and be back with what we're going to be watching next time? Right, so that was Scott of the Antarctic, 1948. Let's see what Stephen has got in store for us for our next episode. Right, I know you enjoy this bit. So, so do I when it's the other way around. So, um, right, well, I'm, I'm bringing us forward about um, about 100 years. Um, well, just maybe slightly off that, but mm-hmm. um, bringing us as ahead in, in order to try and um, bring us more modern. Okay. Give us a bit of, bit of space. Um so we're into the the a different time frame now. We have before um, reviewed a, a, a film called Georgia Girl. Yes. Um, and um, inst- instead of that, I thought we'd uh, we'd look at Gregory's Girl. <laughs> <laughs> oh. So we're so we're moving away from from polar explorers to um, the the 
the the frozen landscape of uh, uh, a Scottish council estate. Yeah. And <laughs> the frozen, frozen north still, yeah. Yeah, and the 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 challenges that are, are almost um, to the same level um, of of trying to reach the North Pole and trying to um, for a, a geeky teenage boy to win the love of a pretty girl yeah i think that the same amount of um peril oh and, uh, and sense of achievement if it was achieved so um so yes that's what we're, we're going for as a te- um, as a teenager the challenges of teenage life and puberty were on a par with scott's expedition to the pole i can vouch for that yeah. gregory's girl i've been waiting for you to bring i knew you would suggest this one i've I, i've it's on my list. I know it's been on your list for a long time. Yeah. And I haven't seen it. I'll tell you what, we reviewed it on the Stinking Paws five years ago, five and a half years ago. Uh, it was during World Cup year, and we, we selected a load of football movies to review. And everybody involved in the review absolutely adored the film. It's very familiar to me. I know it's familiar to you. It's one of your favourites, it is. isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Looking forward to that. Changing tone, changing pace. Um, yeah, we'll have a giggle with that, mate. I'm really looking forward to it. Good. Quick reminder once more, guys, if you want to go and join the Facebook group, just head on over there, apply to be a member, we'll authorise your request. And also, just take a look for us on Twitter, at our Britannia pod. Stephen, been absolutely marvellous talking to you about Scott of the Antarctic today, sir. Been my pleasure. I will see you very soon, sir. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. Absolute shah. A positive shah. Bon voyage. Good luck. Thank you. Hand up, sir.